1: it is arguably my favorite david fincher film i say arguably because i love a lot of his movies for a lot of different reasons yes i mean i'm not i wouldn't say i was an across the board fan of everything he's done i think you can kind of divide his movies into um what i would call technique flexes yes like panic room for example is a great example of that without being a great movie in my opinion, like, I think it's really wonderful how he's like, I wonder if I would be able to do this and that, and if I had all these parameters, it's almost like this kind of five obstructions challenges that he <laughs> sets out for himself, where he can go, uh, okay, so if I can do this, but not do this, if I'm allowed to do this and not do this. I've
2: got to give myself the obstruction of Jared Leto again.
1: And <laughs> Cornrows. <laughs> um, I mean, and Curious Ben, the Curious Case that Benjamin Button is another good example too, which is a film that I, um, I like bits and pieces of it, but I'm never quite, I'm never quite down with the whole thing. But then, then you have the other films where it just feels like this sort of perfect melding of creator and creation, where you feel that he's got, I mean, he's clearly got chops. He clearly knows what he's doing and he clearly has a very specific idea of what he wants to do and will, it seems go to the end of the earth and everyone's tolerance of him to like make sure that gets up on screen because that last, you know, being irritated that you have to do a 70th take, it's temporary. But what's up on screen, that's forever. Yes. And when he can really kind of apply that to something with a lot of philosophical heft or a lot of profundity or a lot of subversiveness, which he's wonderful when it comes to being a very subversive auteur. I'll try to use the word auteur as as, as little as possible here. That's when I feel like they're just really like he. That's when he starts becoming canon worthy. When I feel like he really doesn't have a lot of peers in terms of what he's trying to do it. and what he's trying to resurrect, which is really make the movies that kind of thrilled him as a child or at least thrilled him as a young adult. And having talked to him, a num- having been lucky enough to interview him a couple of times now. Um, that's very much the new hollywood
2: 70s welcome to zodiac chronicle a 24-part investigation into david finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece zodiac adapted from robert Graysmith's smith's novel by screenwriter james vanderbilt the film of course stars an incredible ensemble cast led by jack gyllenhaal robert danny jr anthony edwards and mark ruffalo i'm your host blake howard That introduction today was senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone and the former Time Out New York editor, David Fear. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening and share. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic and deep dives. I also wanna let you know that links to our Patreon with a weekly rum and rant special podcast, as well as very, very special Uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews and links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me in the vice group between instincts and probable cause this week are Zodiac Screamwriter, James Vanderbilt, writer, actor, and star of the Zodiac, Donald Logue, writer and producer of The Post, The Long Shot, and one of the writers behind the second season of David Finch's own Mindhunter. Liz Hannah. Online movie writing veteran Moriarty and it Cool, the founder of Hitfix, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary, Drew McWeeney, former film critic at the LA Weekly and Village Voice, turned filmmaker, screenwriter of Black Christmas, and the former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April wolf Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and Los Angeles Times, part-time lecturer at Chapman University, and the co-host of the miami nice podcast katie walsh writer and film and book critic bill ryan post-production wrangler writer at the film stage and producer of the b-side podcast connor o'donnell and his co-host on the b-side podcast co-founder of the film stage and filmmaker dan mecca this is the 15th episode of zodiac chronicle leo part one every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme This sequence of the film shows the true agony of missed opportunities and the near certainty that these police detectives have looked into the eyes of the man behind the boogeyman. So the theme of the week needs to encapsulate the near supernatural fear that can be struck through a community when the natural order is disrupted. So in keeping with the Leo moniker of the episode, this week's theme is the ghost and the darkness we left off after an incredible scene the interview with john carroll lynch's arthur lee allen mark ruffalo anthony edwards elias codius it's so hard to succinctly wrap up all of the effusive praise that I want to heap on this scene. So instead, here's Drew McQueenie, April Wolf, Katie Walsh, and Bill Ryan to indulge me an opportunity to say, previously, on Zodiac Chronicle.
3: I'm not
4: the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you.
5: Casting is so key in this movie. And I think it's not just the big casting. I think John Carroll Lynch, that that performance he gives is genius, absolute genius. And the big scene where they finally get him face-to-face and they interrogate him, there's there's so many ways that scene could go too far, too hard, lean in, tip its hand, make it clear which way Fincher leans. Mm. And it doesn't, it just doesn't. It refuses to give you that satisfaction
0: you get to see these kind of micro reactions on the actors' faces as this character is revealing too much to them. And I love those reactions so much because it's such a, a combination of restrained performances in there where you're not, you're not getting kind of like the cartoon wolf with the tongue rolling out going, Wa-wooga! <laughs> it's just like there's, there's truly just like um, a, an eye twitch when you know, like when he says too much, and, and it's it's so beautiful, and the coverage of it is amazing, and
6: the looks between Elias Codias and Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, and it's just masterfully cut. The way that the camera is moving to like show you everybody's reaction, the the tempo doesn't really change, but the the tension rises.
4: He's doing. It's one of the best scenes I've ever seen, period, in any movie. Even if I could ignore the film as a whole and do other chores,
2: <laughs> other things,
4: when that came on, I'm, I'm sitting down. I'll tell you, uh, Mark Ruffalo is one of the great actors right now, in my opinion. I agree. And I also think, but for me, the two performances, the two best performances in the whole film are... Anthony Edwards and Ilya Koteas. Mm-hmm. Obviously Koteas isn't in it nearly as much, but I think those two guys are so incredible in their, their naturalism and their ability, like Edwards in particular. Well, there's a scene with Koteas when they, when uh, uh, they ask about the watch. Is it, can I see it? the The, the watch that, Arthur Lee mm. Allen's wearing and he says and he shows it to him at first and then I think it's Ruffalo saying is like can I see it <laughs> yeah. which is great too and he and he takes it off and hands it and like kind of under the table shows it to Cateus. and Kataeus' reaction to seeing that it's that watch the Zodiac watch is somehow he's <laughs> able to get across to the audience his like holy shit thought process. But he under he underdoes it so much so well that you can also believe that Lee Allen, Arthur Lee Allen wouldn't have noticed.
2: And just before we dive into the scene proper, here's James Vanderbilt talking about the success of Zodiac as a text being contingent on the success of not only the execution of the interview scene, but how that tonally then impacts and registers on us, the audience for the remainder of this movie.
7: That scene was a big. It was a big source of debate between all of us. Not debate, but but you know concern or question. And even when we were developing it, we sort of went. I remember I wrote a version where you don't see the scene; you're told about the scene because our concern was, if you meet this guy halfway through the movie, you're going to be so convinced he's the killer that when we move off him, you're we're going to lose. We're going to lose the the movie's going to lose you that you're going to go, no, 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 no the killer's back there. What are you doing? What are you, and the construction of the whole thing should be that you come back around to him and it's a thunderclap. And we were all really concerned. This is before John was even cast. This was just an ongoing conversation all the way through it, that if you dramatize this the way we thought you could dramatize it, it could stop us, it could actually screw up. Obviously we ended up, you know, we were like, okay, we'll shoot it and then we'll see. and. He's brilliant in it, and the and the, the other guys are brilliant in it too. I mean, you know, Elias Koteas is incredible. Like, they're just all great. I mean, um, and, and we could of- we could
2: we could have had an hour interview just on Elias Koteas, to be honest, because yeah. he's by just way, he's so good, <laughs> he's so
7: good. He's- by the way, also just just to say it out loud, it is weird for me to talk about a movie I worked on and praise it. So it's just I'm it's it's I'm I, feeling I, guilty I, about I, doing I, that. But I, I'm just I'm just, I'm just I'm just
2: I'm just gonna say, James, that. That's okay, but unfortunately for you, our shows are about how much we love these enduring pieces of art that actually reward us. And guess what? I, I'm, I hate to say it, the screenwriter of this movie, one of my favorites, there's a poster behind me. You can the see it. Great, the, 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 um, um, is you? No, <laughs> you Thank you very much. It's just it's, it's
7: it's it's my own upbringing that's getting in the way. <laughs> I just feel guilty enjoying things that I do but but I but I will say in that that but that scene was re- we were really concerned and then John came in and parked it but I mean uh, there were conversations I remember seeing a version of it in the editing room where David didn't show his face Ugh. where it was such an interesting just sort of editing exercise which was he just played it on the cops and you never saw him because we were just terrified that you know, that you would go, No, it's John Carroll Lynch. Why do I have to sit here for another hour? Clearly it's John <laughs> Carroll Lynch. He did it. Um and also, by the way, we didn't want to convict Arthur Lee Allen. That wasn't the object of the exercise. <laughs> so ultimately, you know, he cut it the way it's in the film and it and it and it works, but he it's such a testament to how good he is that we were all terrified he would tip it. Um <laughs> You know, and, and, and I also just, I also remember sitting with all of those, you know, with, with all of those officers, um, and, and, and going, did he really say that? Like, did he yes. really have the watch? Did he, because re- at a certain point in time, it strains credulity, you know, and we were just like, Come on, like, really? And it was, you know, came back, no, this absolutely happened. And we verified it with each of them, like, you know, and we talked to Narla separately from Toski and 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 Toski, I mean, said something along the lines of, I have never interviewed someone more guilty in my life. It was just, it was, it was so obvious, you know, the fact that he started talking about bloody knives before anybody brought it up. He brought up bloody knives in his car.
2: And now let's get to the scene.
4: Does anyone think the suspect warrants further investigation? These are copies of some of the Zodiac letters that were sent. Would you like you to take a look at them? You think my brother's the Zodiac? Well, we're looking at him. Are you going to arrest him? Mrs. Allen, we don't arrest people just because we're interested in them.
2: A chevron appears. Ten hours later, Vallejo, California. Matt Winston plays John Allen. Jules Bruff plays Catherine Allen. Winston's... John Allen is a neat, sturdy, cooperative man. He carries himself with a lot of stoic concern. It's clear he's taking this visit seriously, but he's got a good handle on his emotions. Ruff's Catherine Allen immediately draws your attention. Her expensive, well-manicured eyebrows curve and arch with concern with every new syllable spoken by the couple's trio of detective visitors. The shape of Ruff's brows and the piercing focus of her light-coloured eyes are so magnetic that the curve of the ornate floral swirls that adore the lamp base on their sideboard blends into a haze of yellow light the staging of this conversation is welcoming and supportive it feels like guests in a sitting room a pristine couch an art print on the wall and a house plant in the corner in the adjoining room which you can see in the background there's a more worn sofa and the colorized portraits of all three Allen children when Catherine asks if lee will be arrested her sideways glance towards john prompts a conciliatory response about lee's troubles i love moments like this in movies their relationship is synthesized so perfectly in the pregnant pauses of this exchange because you can see that this woman's instinct that her brother-in-law arthur lee allen is off and wrong and dangerous and has probably been setting alarm bells off in her reptilian brain For years, the entire duration of her relationship, in fact. She's very likely spent hours and hours telling her husband as much, and probably chastising him even more once the revelations of child abuse run Earth.
1: always been troubled. Is it true about the children? Unfortunately, we don't see him much anymore since we found out.
2: The posture of the scene is phenomenal. Cotius plays Mullinax as a man who reflexively controls the distance between he and the subject of the investigation. The home setting, the awkward sadness, the guilt of being associated with such a figure is dealt with compassionately, considering we've already seen these three men tactically poke and prod a man into taking off his human mask only minutes prior. So when Mullanax leans in and asks if it's true about the children, the reaction happens like a Mexican wave of darting gazes. It's true, and the shame is a looming cloud above this idyllic picture of middle-class America. He's always been
1: troubled. Is it true about the children? Unfortunately, we don't see him much anymore
4: since we found out. What are your feelings about Don Chaney? Don Cheney, My old roommate? Is he the one who contacted you? That's confidential. Well, Don's
1: a very reliable guy. If he were to tell you something, I'd believe it to be true.
2: Armstrong is asking about Don Chaney, or deflecting that he was the one who suggested the police investigate Lee with the, it's confidential. That line sets you up for disappointment and regret. You sort of start to anticipate that Don may have skeletons in his closet too and acts to grind a vendetta against Lee. But as soon as John responds, it cuts through with this sublime pragmatism. If
1: he were to tell you something, i, I believe it to be true. This one. What about it? Here, where he
6: spells Christmas with two S's. We got a Christmas card from Lee a couple of years ago. He spelled it the exact same way. Christmas.
1: W- would you still have that?
6: Uh, I can look for it.
1: Thank you, that'd be great. Is there anything else we can do to help?
2: The final frame after John's offer of additional cooperation sees Catherine looking sideways towards Toski. She can read in the polite yet restrained emphasis how thankful he would be if there was anything they could do. We transition back to SFPD. Toski is outlining the details of the case's most fruitful day yet to Dermot Moroney's Captain Marty Lee. Before we get to the particulars of the exchange, you must marvel at the thread patterns in the ties. Lee's is a navy tie with a raised diagonal line pattern. Toski, the flashier and more stylish detective, is wearing a loud multicoloured brown, blue, peach and pearl tie. The reams of paper and thick files that line Captain Lee's shelves, the black leather couch with a wooden armrest. Ideal for those officers nursing a coffee and pleading their case every single day with the atmospheric sounds of typewriters the instincts to rush into a conclusion without the proper evidence or ducks in a row and that impulse being dissuaded man this scene could not feel more like 10 editorial exchanges in all the president's men if it tried and i would know
5: the brother said he would search lee's apartment next time he went out of town
2: gets
4: you around the warrant
5: for the time being If we do find something, Mullen X will go to the DA in Vallejo, and we could search the place properly. Now, I got a chance to talk to the cop who interviewed Lee Allen two days after the Berryessa murders. Doesn't remember how he got onto him, but didn't think he looked like a killer, so he didn't like him for Z. But you do. I wish I could have taken the guy in there.
3: Take it slow, Dave. Try and find more stuff for sure. Would a match will get us farther on the warrants.
4: Avery's on two. Tell him the screw. Want me to communicate that verbatim, or can I spice it up a little?
2: There's a great moral quandary at play here for the audience what we want is simplistic heroic movie justice and look the brutal fact of the matter is that every step of this case and really every case should be building to an undeniable conclusion and lobbying with a powerful set of evidence for the arrest and conviction of said person and yet we're taunted the man who's most likely the zodiac wouldn't tell us even if he was he's an outlier he makes us want to regress we as a species aren't ever far away from pitchforks and torches no matter how thick the facade of passivity and modernity has coddled us to believe the final spicing it up request from armstrong only further reveals the depths of betrayal the Tosky felt after Avery swanning onto center stage of the Zodiac story by retrieving evidence from Riverside.
7: This suspect is not your Zodiac.
4: This sample matches the canceled checks in the application.
8: Mm hmm, perfectly.
4: So we've just retested the left hand. I mean, we know he's ambidextrous.
8: In 38 years, I've never seen anyone that ambidextrous. Both hands would have commonalities.
2: I'm
3: sorry.
2: Just not gonna work. Finch's transitions are just divine in this film. The sound of typewriters retreats just in time to hear the slipping of metal in the focus pull of the microscope of Philip Baker Hall's Sherwood Morrill. Armstrong and tosky hover with anticipation, and Morrill's familiarity with the detectives has softened his cantankerous edge. This should be a slam dunk. When Morrill delivers his opinion after clarification, Armstrong and Tosky edwards and ruffalo really show their alchemy edwards is immediately looking for a detour past the roadblock and ruffalo wants to crash against it he wants to test the integrity of the block to pressure and that pressure is philip baker hall imbuing this kind of authority and certainty he's immovable
5: Just not gonna work i'm a
4: dave jack mullin next right. yeah on Why not? He said it wasn't enough. Now, unless we
5: bring him a handwriting match or some evidence well, that. How happens. are we going to get evidence if we can't toss the house? I don't know. True, I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, I thank you,
2: Jack. Instead of the bureaucratic runaround of previous calls, this shared call with Molinax, Tosky, and Armstrong is collegial and supportive. And it acknowledges, even without saying a word, just with the lines of Elias Codius' furrowed forehead. Molinax has had his own time pleading leniency with a judge to make this happen. When they share their appreciation of one another, it's tragic. He's done a look on working with insanely talented editor Angus Wall and the dearly departed and iconic cinematographer, Harris Savides.
5: But Angus was another father our kids were about the same age and um at the time there was kind of a park in studio city california in los angeles where a lot of kids are that's where kids kind of play and do their soccer and baseball stuff and i remember angus was there i ran into angus and he had he had a macbook and he was editing he was working on the zodiac edit at the park and he goes, oh, it's so funny, you know, I was just cutting the scene that you were in. And Angus is such a mensch, such a nice guy. It's sad that you can't get um, Harris Savides, you know, who, who was the DP. And, you know, I asked him, I said, Harris, um, is it easier, is it faster? Will, will high-definition video be faster in the way of the future? And he goes, it's faster you don't have to load cameras, et cetera, but like, it's such a pain in the ass. You have to you have to do tweaks so much more to make it look like film, like, cause film has that natural richness. Yes. That it sucks. It was so <laughs> awesome. You know, like you're, you, you, these guys are all, le- they're legends. I would say that it was criminally underserved.
4: What do you want to do? Don't know what I can do without Balea. We need Alan's right hand. We can't get it without a one.
3: Are there other guys you should be looking at?
4: Only what? 2300. Okay then. Okay then.
2: The song you're hearing right now is Inner City Blues, the final climactic song of Marvin Gaye's landmark 1971 album, What's Goin' On? Inner City Blues was released as a single in October of 1971 and it actually made Marvin Gaye one of the only artists in history to have three songs in the top 10 of the American Billboard Hot 100 chart at the same time. The song in name, in mood, the percussive rhythm has a kind of persistent, I've just got to keep waking up, everyday energy and that entangles with the characters in this scene. The crippling number of leads that obviously are mostly false must be exhaustively followed despite Arthur Lee Allen's nearly antagonistic interview, mounting circumstantial evidence, and character references that only increase our suspicion. This, of course, is played over a time lapse of the construction of the Transamerica Pyramid. Originally the headquarters of the Transamerica Corporation, it was actually built between 1969 and completed in 1972. It was 853 feet or 260 meters tall. It was a 48-story building. It was once a futuristic beacon in San Francisco. The spire in the skyline, typified sort of empire building, phallic iconography, redefined for the contemporary cityscape. But its totemic quality almost makes it feel like a symbol for San Francisco's strange bridge between modernity and a collective possession of tribal times. Here's Liz Hannah talking about working while a building was being built and what she learned about the experience of time for an audience from none other than david fincher
6: there's the one time lapse where just a building is built and like that it's and what's i mean personally slightly funny to me about that is that i was working on a show a year ago or two years ago that we actually saw a building be built while I was in the room. And that awesome. was how we tracked how long we <laughs> And the building was finished before we were finished with the show. And I was like, guys, I feel like this is emotionally and physically taxing on all of us. <laughs> like, we've seen a skyscraper built. It's um, it's almost like it's
2: spitting in your face. You're like, get out of here. Yeah, we're it was to like, work. come on, man.
6: Come on. Um, I feel like I had, like, an emotional relationship with the guys who were building it. I was like, you know, you guys are doing a really good job. Um, we're just going <laughs> to talk about the story Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the other thing that I, I feel like I have personally learned from David is the tracking of time and how, um, almost, I I think we put too much weight on it at times. Like we, he, we, the audience is smart enough to understand that not every story is so then they go to bed then they wake up then they go to bed then they wake up you don't have to do that you don't have to hold their hand and i love that about this movie that this movie takes place over what like a decade and you don't feel that you don't feel i mean you feel that in terms of like the weight of the story on the characters and the passage of time of how long this is going to take and how the toll it takes on them
2: Paul,
1: you wrote the Justice Department asking to be put in charge of the Zodiac investigation?
7: Uh, I merely... Suggested on our letter that those with intimate knowledge of the case create an information clearing house to promote an exchange and free flow of ideas, and that you run it. Well, who's better than me? The mocked man. Paul, if you want to work here, I need three things one, stop boozing, two, stop doing whatever else it is you're doing, and three, cut this nonsense out. Sweetest of Templeton's, if at any time. You feel my excellent work is no longer in step with this trashy provincial rag. I'll more than happily, more than happily decamp for being a all oh, I mean it.
2: Time has not been kind to Avery. When he arrives in the office of John Getz's Temperton Peck, after requesting to be made head of Zodiac Investigations, he's a husk. Self-delusion has fast-tracked his self-destruction. When he cared about the hierarchy and the authority of the Chronicle, he dressed to impress. He took his seat at the table and luxuriated in his ascension. This is the face of someone whose paws are screaming, I don't give a fuck. It's sort of law at this point that Downey felt that being made to do countless takes for every scene he performed was a kind of torture and what's kind of strange is there is this seething beneath the surface that just makes his performance utter perfection as he swans across the newsroom in defiance flared jeans awkwardly stuffed into half-tied shoes he returns to his desk and wraps a rattling bottle of pills in a handkerchief to conceal them When Jake Gyllenhaal's Graysmith says Paul, his expression is vacant, like he's blind to even recognising his face.
1: Paul?
5: What was that?
7: Uh, an editorial ta da tete You wanna grab a drink?
5: It's 10 in the morning.
7: Late breakfast?
2: After Paul caps the dressing down and the rebellious door slamming as an editorial, it's like Graysmith is a kid who's just walked in on his parents' fighting. The exchange between Graysmith and Avery has since been elevated to a pandemic meme. Are you okay? No, but thanks for asking. Now, in pandemic times, it became meme-worthy because of the reflexive impulse to ask how people are when you know they're not okay. Largely because you know that you're not okay. And look, surprise, surprise, the meme misses the essential ingredient of what's happening in this scene. Gyllenhaal's Graysmith asks with sincerity and affection, are you okay? And when Paul stares into his eyes, he sees genuine care. Genuine care. And he responds with an equally heartbreaking candor.
1: Yeah.
5: What was that?
7: Uh, an editorial tete a tete. You want to grab a drink?
5: It's 10 in the morning.
7: Late breakfast, early lunch.
1: Are you okay?
0: Thank
5: you for asking. Shorty! Let's go out for one. Paul, where are you going?
2: Here's Zodiac writer James Vanderbilt on the cast, aging so very well, and Connor O'Donnell and Dan Mecca and myself discussing Robert Downey Jr.'s perfect application of his persona in the Avery performance in Zodiac.
7: Well, that was also... like so The thing that was interesting about the movie in 2007, too, and the way... David cast it was there were people like, like Clea, you hadn't seen in a few years. Oh, yes. Like it had been a few years since the faculty. I mean, you know, Downey, who's wonderful, but is everywhere now, you hadn't really seen a lot of uh, yes. in the last few years. And so it was this sort of, oh, that flavor of ice cream. I love that flavor of ice cream a little bit. Ruffalo had not really broken through completely yet. Like he had done the indie movies and he had done a couple romantic comedies, but he sort of hadn't done as much of something like this, so it was this very interesting um, sort of fresh way of. And Chloe again was in a in a role that you sort of had not seen her in before. So it was this very interestingly cast movie at the time, um, and Jake was the next big young thing. Yeah. So it would make sense that he was sort of the lead. So it it um, that that was it. It's our cast has aged incredibly well. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. now it's like you know. My kid was like, oh, you made a movie with Iron Man and, and, and the Hulk. And that's like, well, but this was before they were Iron Man and the Hulk. When you watch Danny Jr. in Lesson Zero, which is a great performance, he's limited. He's figuring it out. He's
5: got something, you, you see it, you love it. You're like, wow, this is an artist, right? Chaplin, he's limited, but he's
2: figuring out, wow. And then by the time- Kiss I'm, Kiss you know, Bang Bang and Zodiac. Oh my God! Come right. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang, and Zodiac just coming on that same train. You're just like, God damn it! What, this guy knows what you, exactly what, what, what value do? he has. Yeah. What do yeah. you do?
4: I,
5: I invented dice. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, but that's it.
8: Is it's his ability? It's this pattern, right? It's this ability to deliver a line as if it's an afterthought, but like a yes, natural, yes, a natural yes. afterthought. Yeah. And. I mean, it's you know, it it is what makes that Tony Stark character perfect, and him perfect for it, obviously, because the immediate way to read that is kind of ego or arrogance or whatever. Like he's so smart, he doesn't need to think about what he's saying, um, and it's obviously that's imbued in the Avery character in terms of this. Like he just he kind of walks around the chronicle like his shit doesn't stink a little bit. Um, even though it very clearly does, like objectively, you're sort <laughs> yeah. of like you're like you're like, oh yeah, like this dude's kind of seems like a, a self-destructive nightmare, but he's clearly good at his job, I suppose. Um,
4: and and, good enough, right? Good yeah,
8: enough. right, right, right. And and I think yeah, it's 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 this cadence with which, and it's not just him. I mean, I think, uh, and I read this somewhere that one of the way one of the ways fincher put producers minds at ease as far as the length of the script was to get people talking fast right yeah. and and it i was thinking about that while watch in my most recent rewatch because it's i never really thought about that as like a trick you could do to like actually like well that's
5: that's the famous social network story
8: right you know? and i and i I guess this sounds like a dumb, obvious thing to say, but I never really, when you think about pacing in a film, I feel like you rarely actually think
4: about literal pace.
6: So you moved off my brother-in-law.
4: We couldn't get a warrant.
6: Last year, we arranged for Lee to get help from a social worker. He only went twice. We saw him recently for the first time in nine months. My mother-in-law brought him by to see the new baby. After he left, I went to see that social worker. He couldn't talk about a former patient, so I just asked him straight out if he thought Lee was
4: capable of killing people. Because of patient confidentiality. The man
6: said yes. Why hadn't you seen him in nine months? He's going to school in Santa Rosa.
4: Santa Rosa, where is he living?
6: In his trailer.
2: Another Chevron in the home of John and Catherine Allen. This time, 7 September 1972. You'd love to see the Jules Bruss Catherine Allen, who begrudgingly supports her husband's support of his brother Lee, taking a quiet moment alone with Bill Armstrong to continue to spill family tea. This time, it's not in the formal dining area for guests. It's in their lounge room. Catherine's cotton tip hairdo matches this fastidious compulsive cleaning vibe that she's sending off. Pullying therapists for their opinions to break confidentiality is nowhere near as disgusting as the prospect of her brother-in-law making his home in a trailer. It's here that there's just another beautiful layer of flawed humanity on show. For Catherine Allen, jail is more preferable for a brother-in-law than a trailer. But this isn't just spilling tea, family gossip, reminiscing over what might have been. Trusty Bill Armstrong, ever the tactician, sees an opportunity and claims it. And now the final word from Mr. Phil Nobile, Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine.
3: It's like he's trying to sustain that knot in your stomach and and it's reflected in the score, it's reflected in in the, the framing the, the whole last two and a half hours of <laughs> no, the last two and a half hours of the movie are, um, are about <clears throat> making you miserable. Like, let's be honest, it's a miserable feeling. It's that, that, that someone who did these horrible things, uh, fucked with all these people on a, on a psychological level that, you know, I think the movie comes almost up to admitting cost them marriages, cost them, cost them their happiness. Right. Yeah. And how, how do you instill that feeling in an audience without making it feel like you're just you know gawking at them while you're eating your popcorn and then, and then forgetting about the movie by the time you get to the parking lot i think he did a pretty good job of, of instilling that feeling of of misery and that that lingering sense of dread it i i mean i'm sure there are other movies that have done it come close to it but it's it's the movie it's the only one i can think of that makes me feel the way it does I don't think he could have possibly planned for the fact that if he did the killings in different jurisdictions, that the police would just be chasing each other's tails and not even know that shit was happening in the other yes. jurisdiction. I don't, I don't think he was that level of a mastermind, you know. And that's part of us like aggrandizing him into something, <laughs> you know, mythical, some 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 mastermind Hannibal Lecter. For me, the magic of the film is the 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 second thirds, because yes. that's where it just really is is not interested in being the thing you expected it to be. The, Splashy stuff that you're going to put in a trailer goes yeah. goes in the first 25 minutes, and they're and they are beautifully executed sequences, uh, and each one's got its own energy. uh you, There's the the chilling Lake Berryessa murder, which I mean, how many horror movies have I seen in my life? I edited a horror magazine for fuck's sake, but like that <laughs> that, that that murder rattled me because I. In t- in two thousand and seven, I didn't know the details of the case to the degree that I was going to be like, "Well, this is what's going to happen now." I didn't. I was absorbing it as a as a novice, as a, a newcomer to the story, more or less. And uh, the way the way the Lake Berryessa murder is is just blocked and staged, and and just so uh, it, there's something just so nauseating about the quiet of it. It yes. just disgusted me.
2: That concludes episode 15 of zodiac chronicle leo part one be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes and if you can't get enough Unplug zodiac sessions are available exclusively on the one heat minute patreon linked in our show notes thank you so much for listening this episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy, the Duff of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac stickers and pins were designed by the lovely and talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amyreed 310 at gmail.com. Well, why don't you buy one? Wear it says I'm not Avery on it. Seems to be something that you people listening might be interested in. Well, until next time. Goodbye.